G'day, mate. Forty here. Never really paid much attention to Russell Brand as a thinker, as a pundit, as an intellectual, but now he's dominating the news because of these rape allegations. So I decided to do a little bit of a deeper dive into Russell Brand, and this is the one thing that jumps out to me about Russell Brand because it is so common with so many pundits on the right. Now, I wouldn't classify Russell Brand as, as right wing, but. With, with a lot of pundits on the right, such as Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh, Nick Fuentes, Mike Enoch, uh, particularly Eric Stryker, much of the Right Stuff crew, right? They just pour out an avalanche of words. It's not so much specific arguments usually that they're making. It's just pouring out an avalanche of words to try to overwhelm and mesmerize and, and take control of their audience. And I noticed that you know Russell Brand behaves you know much the same way. It's not the specific quality of what he says. It's not the words and the arguments that he makes. It's the emotional experience that he gives people. And I, I think that accounts for his influence and following. It's not the you know the shiny sterling intellectual caliber of his arguments. All right, this is from Conspirituality, the podcast, and the voices of real people. The mirror world is a place that allows narcissists to co-opt the language of solidarity oligarchs to pretend they're rooting for the working class, manic comedians to pretend that they can... So you'll be shocked to learn that Spirituality is a left-wing podcast that critiques non-normative approaches to wellness, health, uh, medicine, and the like. Teach meditation and aggressive misogynists to pretend that they are interested in empowering women. Now, Klein's formulation of the mirror world is really perfect for Brand because it allows us to consider the theater of a highly visible conspiracy theorist who has invented a countercultural truth-telling persona. Right, that's usually what it takes to become successful as a podcast host, a pundit, a live streamer, is that you put on a theatrical quality. You give across the feeling that you are imparting something very wise. I mean, Brett Weinstein and, and his wife, Heather Heyer, are very good at this. Eric Weinstein's very good at this. You feel, when you listen to them, Barack Obama's very good at this. You feel, feel like you're getting something profound. But upon examination, the profundity falls apart. No, no, that extemporizes on everything while investigating nothing beyond what the algorithms tell him will go viral. It allows us to consider what happens when such a person who pretends to research is actually investigated by those who do not live will go in the mirror world. First, I should review the headlines coming to us through a harrowing channel. So why do so many successful podcasters that live stream hosts go in this particular direction? Well, they do it optimize for audience, right? have a choice as a podcaster and a live streamer. Do you optimize for truth or do you optimize for audience, for profit, for clicks, for status? They're so confident in everything they're saying. They believe in it so strongly. They're willing to do anything. I need to become this. I think it's an unconscious thing. Humans want to be revered. All right. This is from a YouTube channel called The Rewired Soul. It's an atheist in 12-step recovery from alcoholism someone who revered Russell Brand's book and approach to recovery, but made a video about a year ago talking about how Russell Brand became the new Alex Jones. They want to be on top of the group. Let's take a look at this in the context of Russell Brand. 
As you can see, he was getting 100,000 views and sometimes hundreds of thousands of views, or it was as low as 60,000. Then look what happened whenever he pushed the Great Reset conspiracy theory. He got 2.6 million views pushing the Great Reset. And then after that, his video about being a vegan dropped to 173,000. After that, having a balanced discussion about the culture war only got him 60,000 views. Fast forward to the COVID vaccine rollout, and he starts saying that much like Miranda, he's being rewarded for videos about the vaccine and Fauci. Not only that, but he was getting a lot of views from pro-Trump people and people who don't like CNN. Will Storr writes in the status game that there are three types of these games. The dominance game, the success game, and the virtue game. Russell Brand is playing the virtue game. Store defines virtue games as when status is rewarded to players who are conspicuously dutiful, obedient, and moralistic. He writes, most of the time, we don't check for ourselves what's true. We check with our elites. We believe what we're supposed to. This even counts for the most precious of our beliefs, the ones we categorize as quote unquote moral. The moral reality we live in is a virtue game. We use our displays of morality to manufacture status. So Will Storr argues that we treat moral beliefs as though they're a moral absolute. During these extreme polarized times, these moral beliefs have completely, completely trumped science and actual evidence. Like think about how many people just have to do so many mental backflips and they experience this cognitive dissonance. All right, so a great understated reason for why so many people hold the political, cultural, religious views that they do is because that is high status, all right? We want to feel cool. We want to look cool. After we get our basic needs met, most of us are primarily striving for status. At the same time, we don't like other people who are striving for status. So obvious drivers, right, we dislike them, even though striving will, will empower much of what we do. So I just subscribed to the Patreon for the podcast, If Books Could Kill Us. A couple of lefties who are investigating airport bestsellers and from their first episode, it basically went to number one on the iTunes chart. So if you want to know how to do a successful podcast, right, you do worse than looking at uh, what uh, If Books Could Kill, what they produced. And here they are on a famous seminal essay by philosopher Harry Frankfurt on bullshit. Three times. I read it once in, I think, undergrad and then once in my 30s. And I remembered it being really good. And I was like, Peter, we should talk about something that's like good for once. We mm -hmm. should like actually dive into like some ideas. We want this to be like an ideas podcast. Yeah. And then I reread it for this and it sucks. <laughs> I was really mad. <laughs> yeah. So we both read it, uh, making this a unique episode. Breaking the format. And that was my experience too. The central thesis is really good. Yes. And the actual essay sucks dude interminable sucks yeah this is kind of why we wanted to do this like originally we thought this was going to be like a deep dive into the book and mm -hmm. you know talk about his examples and kind of apply those to real life but in the book he doesn't really do any of that it's like super conceptual yeah. and so we are going to talk about the book a little bit but then we're mostly going to provide like our own examples of Right, this famous book, this famous essay on bullshit, it really doesn't provide any examples, except the essay itself is really an example of BS. Of like the 2023 bullshit that we are surrounded by, because he's weirdly bad at making the case for his own idea. Yeah. Like, he basically spends 
the first I did it I did it on audiobook this mm-hmm. time, so I don't know the pages, but he spends the first like hour and a half saying what it isn't. Yeah. And then he says what it is in the last like five minutes, and then he's like, peace out. Right. <laughs> he doesn't give any examples. He does a thing <laughs> where you are genuinely eighty-five percent of the way into the essay before he lays his thesis out clearly. And he tells a long story about Wittgenstein, which I did not Dude. like I did not see the relevance of. And he talks about some fucking book. He's like, This other guy defined the seven kinds of lies, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> so there's the Augustine book. <sighs> There's the um, the humbug concept that he examines. The humbug. Okay, so th- these uh, these co-hosts. All right, you got Michael Hobbs and Peter Shamshree, and uh, the one who sounds like a woman is the uh, the gay guy. Right, trying to remember which which one that is. I think that's Michael Hobbs. All right, so if uh, if Books Could Kill is the name of the podcast, there's a lot of good stuff in here, even if you're not a lefty. Of which they are, to some degree, ignorant. Closely related instances arise from the widespread conviction that it is the responsibility of a citizen in a democracy to have opinions about everything, or at least everything that pertains to the conduct of his country's affairs. The lack of any significant connection between a person's opinions and his apprehension of reality will be even more severe, needless to say, for someone who believes it is his responsibility as a conscientious moral agent to evaluate events and conditions in all parts of the world. This was the part that I like really related to, where it's like, sometimes you just have to talk and you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Mm-hmm. This was like a lot of my experience in like high school and college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, I need to produce words on this thing that I'm really not qualified to speak about. Right. This is also a lot of, especially in our political discourse, and like Jesus fucking Christ, how many topics have we covered on the show that perfectly encapsulates this, right? It's like someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. But like if you're reasonably intelligent and you're an okay writer, you can write around the fact that you have no clue what you're Right. Most of what pundits produce, they really don't know what they're talking about. Most of what, you know, Russell Brand says doesn't stand up to any intellectual scrutiny. Most of what Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and right-wing talk show hosts produced doesn't stand up to intellectual scrutiny. We're talking about, and you right. have not spoken to any experts. Right. The amount of fucking words that we are surrounded by that are not. That is right. I mean, that just nails a, a problem as we try to make sense of the world. And it's so much easier to make sense of the world if you've got, you know, a handful of people that you can kind of rely on to make sense of the buzzy and complicated reality around us produced by someone with any actual knowledge is like really staggering to think about. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why I think it was Thomas Friedman that made us think about this essay, because that is a man who writes an enormous amount about circumstances of which he knows very little. Yeah. You can see a certain dynamic playing out in almost all of his writings and all of like similar writings, the David Brooks writings. Right. So what's going on with Russell Brand is not unique as, as far as his rhetorical avalanche style. Uh, you, you see the same thing in writing with Thomas Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs correspondent. You see it with New York Times columnist Pamela Paul, New York Times columnist David Brooks. Right. This is the dominant mode of discourse in punditry. Yeah. Where you can say a couple things that you know, 
speculate about a couple of things that you don't know mm -hmm. and then imply that you have like reached a conclusion of some sort. Yeah. Right. And that I think is like a very common form of bullshit. This is the thing that kind of bugs me is I think what he's saying here is in an educated society with mass literacy where we have roughly 35% of the population is now college graduates, you're kind of expected to have opinions and have knowledge on like a preposterously wide range of topics, right? You're supposed to know about climate change and yeah. welfare and like a huge range of issues. And of course, you're not going to be an expert on any of them. And like, yeah, some of the stuff you're just going to translate into cocktail party chatter. And like, you're just going to have one fucking fun fact about like, should we use nuclear power or not? Right. And like, that's kind of fine on a civilian level. I don't really mind the fact that most people are not super well-informed about these technical issues. What does bug me, though, is that there's an entire class of journalists yeah. who doesn't think it's their job to go any deeper. Mm -hmm. What you've basically done is misinformed the public because they're relying on you to do fucking work. Like, what do you think journalism is? <laughs> it's not engaging in the debate. Anyone can fucking do that. It should be trying to separate fact from fiction. Right. So when I spoken to people on this show who would pass opinions on on books on essays on, on papers that, that they hadn't even read i just knew that this person was reckless and was you know cruising for a bruising it, it's not a good sign if you do this and i think the sort of central trueness of harry frankfurt's essay is that like we're surrounded by a bunch of people who just aren't interested in fucking doing that. And to a degree can't. You know, yeah. we've talked about how widespread the idea of like the general journalist is. Like the journalist who believes that their job is to know stuff about everything mm -hmm. and whose publication, generally speaking, believes that their job is to know stuff about everything. Mm -hmm. And no one can have expertise that broad. No. And if you try to, what you can do at your best as a reporter is to have some idea about, you know, who are reliable sources and in what ways are they reliable and what ways are they unreliable. You will be talking out of your ass. Yes. And so Matt Iglesias believes that he can weigh in on nearly anything. Yeah. And the result is that he is very consistently talking out of his ass yeah. and experts who actually do know stuff about the stuff that he's talking about will step in and be like, hey, you're dumb as shit, dude. You have no idea what you're talking about. Right. And then he can dig in his heels right. because he believes that he is smart enough to grasp this stuff. And the idea that other people are like considerably more knowledgeable about something, it doesn't compute in his brain. Well, I actually am like somewhat a defender of generalists, partly because I am one <laughs> and like I want to be able to defend my own career. But also there are journalists that manage to do this. Like David Wallace Wells, who's also a columnist at the New York Times, spends like a week or two digging into a topic before he writes about it, right? He just wrote about long COVID and like he did a bunch of work. He interviewed people. He read the relevant literature. Yeah, David Wallace-Wells is an excellent example of someone who does the work. Uh, Christopher Cordwell on the right, I think, is a pretty good example of someone who does the work before he starts dispensing his opinions. And he's like, here is the consensus among experts. I actually think that that's fine. And like yeah. part of what journalists do, it's not necessarily that they're engaging in a debate or like delivering takes or whatever. It's just like they have more time than you do mm. for making.
Right. So anyone who's immediately, you know, passing off strong opinions on either side of this latest Russell Brand rape controversy, I mean, it's it's absolutely reckless. The accusations do seem pretty strong against him. Uh, on the other hand, what were these women doing them doing, placing themselves in harm's way? I mean, how often do you hear women who are a part of the the Me Too movement uh, taking responsibility for their own choices for you know, why, despite all advice to the contrary, even people pleading with them, you know, don't, you know, go over there alone to a predator's house. They insist on doing it anyway because they just feel so compelled because the guy's just so charismatic and so powerful and they just can't help themselves. But now they want government laws against, you know, what they consented to do. Phase. It's like I'm going to spend two weeks looking into like the history of mad cow disease. Most people don't have that kind of time. This is my job. Right. It's not that the generalist is a faulty or bad category of journalist. It's that there's a slippery slope element, right? Yeah. Where someone who doesn't really have a beat can just start spouting off, right? Yeah. Especially if they find themselves in a position of great discretion. Right. There's- All these uh, right-wing influences are just spouting off in support of Russell Brand without knowing anything about the, the truth or falsity of these accusations against him. So much of what passes for punditry and commentary is just people choosing sides and just choosing to support their side, despite uh, all all evidence to the contrary. There's no check on a lot of these folks. And I think that is the sort of dangerous side of having general. So this uh, Russell Brand investigation, right, it's not easy to find online. You have to download it through the sharing sites. But it was the work of years, right? They didn't just concoct this in a couple of weeks because they didn't like Russell Brand's, you know, anti-COVID vaccine stance, all right? They had one woman who was working on this for for four years. She spoke to dozens of people. You had a whole team of investigative reporters producing something that is pretty sharp and convincing. This journalist, yeah. if you're not staying on the grind, then you will eventually become a David Brooks. Well, speaking of which, should we do our examples? Yeah. So after we read this book and we realized that it wasn't as, like, meaty as it could have been, we thought that since the book itself does not provide very many examples of the concept, we thought... Okay, talking here about the book on uh, bullshit. All right, so here's a summary of the accusations against Russell Brand for Dispatch's documentary based on a Times and Sunday Times investigation by Rosamond Irwin, Charlotte Wace, and Paul Morgan Bentley. Irwin was on the story. So it is a good sign for the integrity of investigation if it is multiple organizations teaming up because it's easy to fool yourself and it's easy to fool one person. But when you have multiple organizations working together on a project, right, whatever you end up publishing, it has to pass muster with all of these organizations, right? All of these organizations are effectively putting their head on the chopping block to publish something controversial. For four years, and her colleagues signed on about three years in, and their investigation platforms the stories of numerous women who variously allege that Brand raped, sexually assaulted, or sexually abused them. And the stories are uncanny in their similarity. The women describe Brand's very direct and intentional targeting periods of boundary testing, and how at the peak of the alleged aggression, his eyes would go black and unresponsive. I know from days of my social life that I could go to a party and I would just tune in to the the one woman 
who I just sense would not be a lot of effort to get into bed. So I, I think many, many men in particular have led promiscuous lives. They, they kind of have this sixth sense for female weakness. In the Dispatches documentary, the broader context for these incidents is filled in by a former personal assistant and other sources. Why do multiple organizations team up against a podcaster? Because Russell Brand is much more than a podcaster, particularly in England. All right. He worked with the BBC for years, uh, producing documentaries, producing radio shows. He's been a star in major motion pictures. Right. He's been on the telly for more than two decades in Great Britain. So he's not just a podcast bro. Who described Brand's daily schedule being dictated by his insatiable predation. Now, I, I think Russell Brand would admit to this. He admits to being a sex addict and at, at various sex addiction programs that I've gone to, 12-step programs, you find various celebrities, often ones who've gotten in trouble in the, the Me Too movement for their out-of-control sexual predation. Runners and production staff were enlisted to provide Brand with an endless supply of new sexual partners recruited on the fly from studio audiences. The story that has received the most attention so far comes from a woman speaking under the pseudonym of Alice, who alleged... Yeah, Russell Brand is the one who did a hit piece on Mark Collette for the BBC. But remember, you know, Mark Collette uh, conspired in his own destruction. He, you know, willingly offered himself up as a sacrifice. Just that Brand grievously assaulted her during their three-month relationship 18 years ago when he was 30 and she was 16. Yeah, but she <laughs> carried on in this relationship for, for three months. Right. She chose him. Right. The, the taxi driver who drove her to Russell Brand's home pled with her not to go in. But she knew better. She described how a car hired by the BBC, where Brand was working at the time, came to pick her up from high school and deliver her to Brand's flat. The journalists discovered that Brand's management at the time took measures to keep the relationship secret. In the UK, where this took place, Alice had technically attained the age of consent, under a law passed in 1885. And in follow-up interviews, Alice has stated that she hopes her story helps to change that law. Okay, technically, well, technically, as in if you drive 34 miles an hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone, you're abiding by the speed limit. All right, Russell Brand was abiding by the speed limit here. All right, it's, it's no more technical than anyone else obeying the law. Now, what, what kills me is these women seem to take no responsibility for their own choices they want government to change laws to restrict their choices and other people's choices because they don't have the capability of moral agency. They are not capable of taking responsibility for their own choices. They are not capable of making adult decisions on their own. They are essentially saying, I, I am a child. Allow the government to serve as a guardian for me. The story of Nadia, another pseudonym, is also crucial because she was able to provide the medical report from her visit to a rape crisis center shortly after Brand allegedly raped her. And she was able to provide a string of text messages dated within hours of the incident between her number and a number confirmed to be Brand's. In that thread, Brand apologized profusely for harming her in response to her clear description of an attack. The Metropolitan Police in London have said they have opened an investigation into so the greater context is that all sex contains an element of violence, right? It, it is not a particularly loving act in general, particularly when it is sporting sex, all right? This is not sex in the context of marriage, right? Not many people are hurt in the context, I would assume, of, of marital sex. But from someone who enjoyed a great deal of, you know, recreational and sporting sex, 
uh, people tend to be a lot more adventurous, pushing boundaries and, you know, experimenting and, you know, treating the whole thing in a more sporting manner than you would find in the context of a long-term relationship. And so, yeah, people are more likely to get hurt in that particular context. If you choose to play tackle football, you're much more likely to get hurt than if you perform on the drama team, right? You step onto the playing field to play tackle football, right? There's a very high likelihood you'll get hurt. If you step into the playing field of recreational sex outside of the context of a long-term relationship, you're very likely to get hurt the allegations against Brand. And what has Brand himself said? The Times notes that they gave him eight days to respond to their reporting. The day before the story... And Elliot Blatt says if Luke's live stream became popular because his different people have different gifts views, he would be investigated and declared to be a monster. I have been investigated many times. And uh, yeah, maybe not quite a monster, but many of the portrayals were not positive dropped, Brand issued a preemptive denial of all of the allegations. Here's a minute of that, that's all you need, of his last-ditch effort to dodge this train. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies, and as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. I was always transparent about that then, almost too transparent. And I'm being transparent about it now as well. And to see that transparency metastasized into something criminal that I absolutely deny makes me question, is there another agenda at play? Particularly when we've seen coordinated media attacks before, like with Joe Rogan, when he dared to take a medicine that the mainstream media didn't approve of. And we saw a spate of headlines from media outlets across the world using the same. Okay, the reason that Joe Rogan gets attacked is not because he took a medicine that the media did not approve of. The reason that Joe Rogan gets attacked is because he promotes all sorts of wacky, uh, possibly dangerous at times, uh, ill-informed. Uh, points of view that he has guests on uh, and he doesn't have the intelligence or the background to ask them the important questions, right? Joe Rogan is the intellectual equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website, right? It's, he's not very smart. He has no ability to distinguish, you know, what's right from what's false. And he is just easily seduced, right? Every bit is easily seduced as, uh, say, the women in this Russell Brand investigation. Language. I'm aware that you guys have been saying in the comments for a while, watch out, Russell, they're coming for you, you're getting too close to the truth. Russell Brand did not kill himself. So you get the gist. Now, this video was instantly endorsed, or boosted by, among many others, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, Ian Miles Chong, and Canadian self-help and women's empowerment guru, Danielle Laporte, who shared the video to Instagram with the caption, steadfast, unwavering compassion to you. Now, I should note that... Fra- Why did multiple organizations team up to investigate Monk misconduct he's already confessed to? Because he didn't confess to raping women, right? He confessed to promiscuity. And society has a very different attitude towards promiscuity than it does towards rape. End of the pod, Dr. Lisa Rankin, who also has a large following in the alternative. Do I consider traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbs, wacky? I use it myself. I found it uh, pretty effective for some of the ailments that uh, I was using it for. So, so I'd have to look at it on a, a case-by-case basis. So I'll give you an example. I went to Kaiser for some elbow pain or 
hip pain that, that I was having. And I remember I got an affirmative action doctor who's not very competent and was like, just made my pain worse by the, the careless way that they, you know, moved me around and declared, oh, you'll probably need to have a hip replacement in, you know, five or 10 years. Uh, then I went to a practitioner of acupuncture and the elbow pain that had afflicted me for about a year was just cured in about four sessions. So for many things, traditional Chinese medicine is highly effective. Then when the elbow pain came back, I went to a physical therapist who was great and he cured my elbow pain in one session. He was even more effective than the acupuncturist. But uh, any physical therapist who is worth his salt will not take your health insurance, will not work on a lean basis. All right. So you have to pay more money for someone who's competent. But a great physical therapist will usually be more effective at curing, you know, various aches and pains than someone practicing traditional Chinese medicine. Alternative medicine world clapped back at Laporte and others by name, asking, why are spiritual white women reflexively defending an accused predator? And that's a question I think will be with us for a long time. Now, there were more intellectual or... So why do affluent white women protect an accused predator? I mean, why do we do anything? Because we see it as in our interest, because it is considered cool by the people whose opinions are most important to us. It's not that complicated. Or maybe pseudo-intellectual defenses. Psychedelics author Daniel Pinchbeck published a Substack article in which he largely ignored the published allegations in favor of using the theories of René Girard to argue that Brand had become a ritual scapegoat for a conflicted and hypocritical culture. All of the cruder endorsements alluded to the deep state having no choice but to silence Brand's dangerous views. He was over the target, as they say in QAnon, and the elites had no choice but to pull the Me Too lever. They all suggested that the timing of the article was suspicious. Why now, they asked, just as Brand is questioning vaccines and support of Ukraine? And nowhere do these pundits indicate any understanding that it can take four years to nail down adequate sourcing and corroboration for an extremely important story, which could have fallen apart and been killed by the editorial or legal departments at any moment. On the other side of the aisle, critics of Brand have made a lot of his preemption video and its endorsements, saying that his immediate appeal to the specter of a conspiracy against him indicates that he knows what his audience expects or can be led to believe, and that he knows who his friends are. But some of this commentary strayed further into blue pill territory to settle on an appealing, but I think flawed idea that Brand's most recent pivot during the COVID era into rightward-leaning conspiracy theory land was a strategic move designed to raise a digital army that would defend him against anything. He knew it was coming, they say, and he plotted out his path to exoneration years in advance. This is really implausible to me, given everything we know about online opportunism and the speed of audience capture. I think it's also implausible, given how short-term Brand's planning seems to be, and how much he clearly depends on in-the-moment improvisation and a kind of vaudeville porno style of physical theater. I understand why folks would want a mastermind-type story. The attraction is that it sidesteps the scarier problem that our media instruments are basically set up to magnify people like Brand, and that's not a mustache-twirling villain problem. That's a social architecture problem. Now, Naomi Klein offered the non-conspiratorial, non-paranoid version of this idea by tweeting out the following. 
Of course, Russell Brand's followers deny the allegations. He has groomed an audience to deny, disbelieve everything they see and hear, which is very different from healthy skepticism. This knee-jerk denial... Look, do you believe that Russell Brand would have been investigated so vigorously if he espoused more mainstream opinions? Yes, because obviously almost all the big names in the Me Too movement were on the left. Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose, etc. And they were all investigated vigorously and their careers were destroyed. So I don't believe that Russell Brand's opinions had uh, that much to do with him, him being investigated. His popularity, which you can link to his opinions, but plenty of people on, on the left right, have been investigated and exposed, right? How is my Rosh Hashanah? It was blessed. All the women making the accusations are anonymous. I believe so. All right, let's get back to conspirituality. ...is precisely why people with plenty of skeletons in the closet love conspiracy culture. They have a built-in defense against accountability. It's all a conspiracy, always. I appreciate that Klein uses the term groomed here in a way that merges the meanings of sexual and epistemological violence, but she doesn't directly connect the two by speculating on Brand's intentionality. Now, if Brand did have some big plan in the cooker, it's not working out so far. He hasn't shown his face online since the story dropped. His management company has cut ties with him. He's canceled an entire comedy tour in the UK. YouTube has demonetized his channel, and the UK Minister for Culture, Media and Sport has sent a kind of strange, maybe ill-advised letter to the CEO of Rumble inquiring as to whether the video platform has allowed Brand to monetize his preemptive strike against the investigation. So now apparently many brands are removing their advertising from Rumble. Now, before I... Because they haven't demonetized Russell Brand, just based on accusations. Now, these accusations do sound incredible. They do sound credible. They do sound very solid. Move on to the background and context I mentioned. There is one other preemptive move that Brand made against this story, and he posted it on TikTok two days before his blanket denial uploaded to YouTube. Christ's final words. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Of course, in this moment, Christ is referring to his own execution at the hands of the Roman judiciary and Pilate famously washing his hands of our Lord and Saviour. But its relevance in that moment is very particular. Of course, the sacrifice of a living God is a massive, seismic, epochal and defining human event. But is it not more relevant right now? Because as Joseph Campbell says, what does it matter if Christ dies on the cross 2,000 years ago, if we are not continually dying and reborn unto ourselves, that we may experience each moment anew? Is this not exactly what Lord Buddha is referring to? Remain awake, remain in the present. Perhaps what... Yes, this was my first coffee. You're watching the 1995 movie I made that never saw an apricot sky. And it was right here at Venice Beach on this shoot that I had my first coffee. Right, Probably my, my first hit of caffeine. It was uh, 1995. And, and now I, I've fallen into the devil's grip. I am now drinking coffee probably three times a week. In fact, I, I had one at 3 o'clock this morning. I'm proud I was able to sleep in until 2.30 this morning. Then about 3, 3.30, I had my, my cup of coffee. I've been assembling my greatest blog posts from the... Well, I've, I've gone back to 2012 right now, and it's, it's interesting. Like, back in the day, 2012, 2013, 2014, sometimes I could produce, like, four thoughtful blog posts a day but there is this 
tremendous heavy depression that kind of underlays you know almost all of my blogging in from about late 2007 until the fall of 2015. So you don't detect depression in my blog posts after about the fall of 2015, only perhaps intermittently when I'm really frustrated about something, but overall, very little depression. So in, what was it? Something like uh, June of, of 2013, I began taking modafinil. And I began using the Fisher-Wallace device around the same time. And those two in combination uh, significantly reduced my depression. Then as I was taking Modafinil, I went through all the archives of Steve Saylor's website and that launched me on my different groups have obviously different gifts kick, which I've been on pretty solidly since 2014. That got me intellectually engaged. So 2012, 2013, I'm primarily writing about myself. I'm listening to my favorite pop songs from the 1970s and 80s and just writing out you know, my memories and my feelings. And then I get on Modafinil and I get on a much more intellectual kick. So let's go back here to the Conspirituality Podcast. These men to the one interpretation that I might offer you of Christ's words, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, is that most people, most of the time, are unconscious. Forgive them, they know not what they do. They don't know why they're saying that. They don't know why they're doing that. They don't know why they're driving that way. They don't know why they're treating the planet that way. They don't know why they're talking about one another in that way. Isn't it our duty to, like Christ, awaken from the flesh body and into the transcendent being of light, the elevated escalating transcending individual let me know in the comments if you agree with this interpretation that what we truly must become is conscious in this moment now okay so with these two clips on board i can get into the first core theme that we here on the podcast have focused on in previous coverage and that's that brand is a consummate bullshitter and i mean that in the sense put forward by american philosopher harry frankfurt on any given subject brand might be lying brand might not be lying you can't really tell, and it doesn't really matter because he doesn't seem to care. He's not working his jaws in relation to any respect for what is true or useful. He speaks to seize attention, create an impression, and weave a spell. Here's what Frankfurt says about the difference between lies, truth, and bullshit. Quote, Someone who lies and someone who tells the truth are playing on opposite sides, so to speak, in the same game. Each responds to the facts as he understands them, although the response of the one is guided by the authority of the truth, while the response of the other defies that authority and refuses to meet its demands. The bullshitter ignores these demands altogether. He does not reject the authority of the truth, as the liar does, and oppose himself to it. He pays no attention to it at all. By virtue of this, bullshit is a greater enemy of the truth than lies are. Now, in his ninth hour YouTube preemptive defense, we hear one valence of Brand's bullshit, the gish-gallop patter of urgent pivots, illusions, vagaries, and non-sequiturs. This is Brand's manic mode. It's pressurized and claustrophobic, a wall of words that can feel physically overpowering. In the show notes, I'm going to link to my colleague Derek's close reading of one such Brand scenario in which he pretends to debate journalist John Heilman on The Bill Maher Show. The topic is the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News for knowingly implicating their company in electoral fraud and whether CNBC and other centrist platforms have ever been found to be likewise lying about what they know to be true. 
Brandt is claiming that all media institutions are equally corrupt and untrustworthy, but he cannot substantiate his point with any examples when Heileman asks for the receipts. And Derek emphasizes how, in the absence of having evidence, Brandt gets physically aggressive, manspreading, leaning in, making intrusive eye contact, constant touching, and never shutting up. And then if you roll the tape back to his earlier television and radio work on shows like how is Russell Brand different from Jonathan Greenblatt? Jonathan Greenblatt, for all his faults, does choose his words much more carefully than Russell Brand. Jonathan Greenblatt takes care to construct particular arguments, while Russell Brand is just just all over the map rhetorically. Like Big Brother, all of that boundarylessness of speech and body is there. That's his brand, so to speak. In prior episodes, we've also talked about the neurotic speech that so many of the male influencers we cover seemed to get locked into through a process of self-entrancement. This is true. This is a great point, right? It's coming from a lefty, but I think he's 100% correct here. In their different ways, Russell Brand, Alex Jones, Jordan Peterson, Tim Pool, Matt Walsh, Andrew Tate, Ben Shapiro, they all have it. These are all men who cannot bear to pause, let alone be interrupted. And given the nature of digital space, they never have to stop. They throw off this sense that if they closed their fire hoses, that their fragile selves would burn to the ground. Now, in brand, this improvisational tick can ascend into something that sounds like spiritual ecstasy. But the thing about the fire hose of charismatic speech is that it can't just be water or sounds. It really does have to be made up of words and phrases and ideas. But the quantity is so high that the quality and coherence cannot possibly keep up. So that brings me to the second main observation we've made about Brand and everyone who works this particular kind of shtick, that the content is never the point. Sometimes it's compelling, as when Brand goes on an anti-corporatist. Okay, Elliot Blatt says, once a man uses the phrase, man spreading, he's dead to me, or man explaining. Elliot, you uh, you like to <laughs> declare much of humanity dead to you, right? The complexity, the multiplicity, the vulnerability of life, I think, annoys you. And so you want to boil down you know, all the variables and, and try to reduce them to some you know, manageable size. So if I simply you know, stop uh, interacting in a meaningful way with people who use you know, various phrases, then, then I'll feel more secure about my, my place in the world. I'll be less vulnerable. I, I won't have to deal with as much BS. And so I think we all have this same desire to try to economize. And so whenever we get you know, certain signals, such as people who use manspreading or mansplaining or you know, anything else that we take particular offense to, we just dismiss their humanity. We just dismiss them from our lives. We just dismiss the, the opportunity for you know, genuine conversation with them because that feels like it reduces our vulnerability to life. All right? We have to engage with fewer people. All right. We can, you know, calm down. We can economize. We can direct our our efforts more efficiently. I, I know I do this too. Rant. Sometimes it's revealing, as in the endless, partially told stories and allusions to his own behavior, but it will never stay on the same topic. Now, the principle of the content is never the point is also something we've tracked in relation to our work on cults, where a leader's point of view is nearly always impossible to clearly define. If it changes, if he reverses himself, if he jumps the shark altogether, it makes little difference because what he's really doing is holding attention through affect and behavior modification and relational manipulation, not through ideas. 
Why do you suppose people are so confused about Brand's politics? Is he black-pilled and apathetic as he sits with Pacman admitting that he never votes? Is he an anarchist trying to push Ed Miliband further to the left? Is he a Trump apologist? What exactly does he believe about vaccines? Did he really cut a whole video about the trucker convoy in Ottawa being all about some kind of peaceful protest of the authoritarianism of public health? People are confused about Brandt because none of his ideas are coherent. And that's because the content is not the point. That's a great point with all sorts of people. And I primarily listen to people on the right. And so I'm thinking of Ben Shapiro, uh, Matt Walsh, Dennis Prager, Jordan Peterson. The content is not the point. The ideas is not the point. It is this emotional entrancement, this emotional trance that they want to cast over an audience. That's the point. And the words are just to communicate a feeling, right, to create an emotional state, particularly a state of aggrievement, right? Almost all punditry, right, almost all successful live streamers depend upon tapping into the same thing that marketers tap into and that is that your problems are due to people outside of you. Your problems are due to an outgroup, whether it's the, the liberals, the Democrats, the, the Jews, the, the capitalists, right? You know, the problem that you have, the reason that you're a victim, why your life sucks, has nothing to do with you and your poor choices. All right, I can show you who to blame. Right? That's the path for successful right-wing live streaming and uh, punditry and for, for much of politics. Right? This is Fred Luskin. That's where religious coping can be invaluable. And where they found that so strongly was with the Amish people who, what, a decade or more ago, that guy came in and shot up all these young kids. And they offered forgiveness to uh, that person um, was because their religion so believed in forgiveness that their, their stories were about forgiveness, their heroes were people who had forgiven and their families instructed them in direct forgiveness. So they had this pre-laid schema for how to do it. Most of us live in cultures. Right. So if you're filled with you know, anger and resentment, you don't have to look at your own role in creating misery. Right? You don't have to look at your own choices, your own maladaptive responses to stimuli. Well, that's not true. Where we have pre-laid schemas for taking offense, for fighting people who don't do what we want. Right. I mean, isn't is that true? Most people have these pre-laid schemas that they're not even conscious of for taking offense, for writing people up for, for, for tickets, essentially, in their mind because other people have broken their unenforceable rules. And for holding on to our grievances like that. Those are the cultural imprints that most of us are surrounded by. And that makes forgiveness way more difficult. Um, I have run, God, since the mid-90s, something called the Stanford University Forgiveness Project. And we have gone to many parts of the world and taught people how to forgive, even from really difficult things. Like, you know, we, we did work in Northern Ireland where we taught Catholics and Protestants who had family members killed in their violence to forgive. And we've gone to... Right. And this would apply to many women as well. Dennis Prager's current wife, wife number three, 
relays that when she was a waitress, her, her manager grabbed her breasts and she simply removed the guy's hands from her breasts, told him not to do it anymore and just went on with her life. Now, she could have carried on her life with the self-identity as a victim of sexual violence. And many women do, right, for incidents as trivial as that, right? They go through life then with a chip on their shoulder that they've been a victim of sexual violence and they are afraid of men. They hate men. They just carry this, this resentment and hatred with them, plotting for revenge all their life over something relatively trivial that many other women who endured the exact same thing would uh, shrug it off and get on with it. Um, we went to the United Nations after the attack on the World Trade Center and taught people how to forgive and have gone to Sierra Leone and Colombia after their violence and stuff and taught people to forgive as well as all the normal stuff. Like, you know, grandma didn't do something or you screwed up. And we found that um, the very, the basics of forgiveness are generally the same. So I think I've, I've generally taken a stoic attitude in life. I've, I've never made a report to HR in my life. Right. I've never made a criminal complaint in my life. You know, I either deal with a situation or I remove myself from a situation. Even though the intensity of offense can be different, the pathway to forgiveness is not that different. But the intensity leads to different issues requiring more effort or more time to involve forgiveness. So my work is, um, I've written a couple very successful books on forgiveness. Um, I do coaching for people who need help with forgiveness, you know, like on Zoom. But most of my work is giving talks to remind people that if you forgive yourself or others, you will be a happier and healthier person. I, at that level, it's not complicated. If you let go of grievances and grudges, you will on the whole be a happier and healthier human being, physically healthier. Grievances are one of our, like one of humans' main mechanism for limiting our happiness. Right. I know women who filed sexual harassment lawsuits and lost, and it's just destroyed them. Right. It's consumed their life for years and years and years. And it ends up with them losing their job, you know, losing their looks, losing their happiness, losing their dignity. Because often when you, you know, file a tort lawsuit where you say, hey, you harmed me, you then become obsessed with the harm that other people did to you. And that almost never has a good effect on you. You just become thoroughly incentivized to try to build as strong a case as possible about how other parties have harmed you. And sometimes it's absolutely legitimate. It's the best choice to make. But many times, probably most times, it has a bad effect on, on the people launching such lawsuits. Like we use our grudges and grievances as reasons not to be happy in this life. And you see it socially. Right. You see that with so many of my viewers and people who comment on my videos that you know, they feel like they're living under communist tyranny. And for whatever problems the United States, Canada, Australia, England have right now, if you live in one of these countries, you still have a better than 95% plus of humanity. You, you live in safer, more prosperous conditions 
than uh, most people on earth. You have you know, many opportunities to make something good of your life. You have freedom of worship. You can go out, you know, get a job, build a family. But people are strongly incentivized somehow. They've got this schema in their head that they are victims living under communist tyranny. Now, why is it that we are so optimized for grievance, right? Because we're optimized for survival. And having a grievance probably helps with your survival. It helps you to pass down your genes, but we are not optimized for happiness. So being optimized for survival, for passing on your genes, but through the evolutionary process, is not the same as being optimized for happiness. All over the place. My group was badly treated. My parents were badly treated. I was badly treated. Therefore, I'm not going to walk outside, open my arms to the sun and say how unbelievably lucky I am to spend this modest amount of time on this beautiful planet. We use our grievances as eclipses. Right. So many of the women with complaints about Russell Brand, right, they could instead introspect and think about what role did I play in putting myself in this dangerous, unhealthy situation? How much advice did I ignore? If I didn't get any advice to ignore predators like Russell Brand, how come I was in such a vulnerable position that I wasn't sharing what was going on with my life or I developed a life where nobody cared about me? So they may be 100% factually true in things that they say, and yet it may not be in their best interest to allow this resentment against Russell Brand to consume them. On the other hand, it may be in their best interest, and maybe they have not allowed their resentment against Russell Brand to consume them, and maybe they've gone on to lead happy, productive lives. So some women can, I think, uh, testify fairly and accurately about male sexual predators and not allow this to take over their life. Right? can go on to you know, an honorable and good and thriving life, and other women just become absolutely consumed and would probably have been better off with trying to just learn a lesson from it, just trying to squeeze all the meaning that they could from these interactions to learn where they went wrong and then go on with their lives rather than trying to mount a case against people like Russell Brand. That, that's how we use them. We put them between us and the sun. And then we say the sun doesn't exist. We all do this, no matter big or small, you know, whatever group you belong to, we all do this. We all say at some level, I can't be really happy now. I can't, I can't embrace this delicious opportunity to be here for a modest period of time because of X, Y, and Z. Because this person didn't do right, because I screwed up, because my group was treated. I mean, do you, do you think men are really happy, you know, having so much testosterone that they feel this imperious urge to try to have, you know, as many sexual interactions as, as possible? Right. This this sucks for men. In many ways, I'm much happier now as a 57 year old man. I don't have the same imperious sex urges that I did at 17, 27 or 37. Did unfairly. We all use that as some kind of an excuse to not open to now. To not just recognize people are so invested in not being open to the now to not being open to the possibilities and pleasures and rewards of the world around them to try to ward off pain to try to reduce possible discomfort hurt disappointment people have these schemas to ward themselves off from reality to ward themselves off from the opportunities and pleasures and possibilities of right now they are so invested in their victimhood schema that now and we don't know how many more nows we're going to have 
it's a gift and it's a precious gift and on planet earth that gift involves suffering as well as beauty but it's a gift and many of us use our like grudges and grievances even worse than that we use it to harm other people we say to our partners or lovers you didn't do this therefore i'm Right. So many people just, you know, carry on this chip on their shoulder after disappointment in dating. Dating seems to be the the one dominant activity in life that I I can think of where people become, you know, less good at it the more they do of it. Like normally the more you do something, the better you get. But it seems like the more people date, the more of a shell they develop, the more of a sense of victimhood they develop. Right. The more hard and cynical they get. And I mean, that's that's true for me. I naturally tend to carry a hard cynical shell with me into the world and it kind of keeps people at at bay keeps people at distance right as opposed to when i can be vulnerable and to you know open myself up to loving and being loved by people caring about people uh, open myself up to being you know hurt uh, open myself up to feeling empathy uh, much of my life, I've been afraid to feel empathy because I just get flooded by by so much empathy that I find it disabling and I lose any sense of myself. But as I grow older, I can maintain a sense of myself and what I stand for and also have an appropriate empathy for other people and where appropriate, where safe to, to let down my you know hard, cynical exterior to allow other people to get closer to me. I'm going to treat you badly right now. And we feel perfectly justified doing that. You were bad then, I'm gonna be bad now, we're even. We, we actually make believe that our grievances give us an excuse to not do the right thing. I mean, and this is true for many of the people in the, in the Me Too movement. It's an opportunity to live a life of grievance. And I think some of the, the women who came forward were absolutely heroic, but others just jumped on the bandwagon to you know, live out the possibilities of a life of grievance and revenge. So not only does unforgiveness make us less happy, but it makes us less happy producing around us. So let's say your manager or your, your rabbi or, you know, your boss, you know, reached out and fondled your breast when you were 17, right? You can live as a victim of sexual violence and, you know, carry that chip on your shoulder and drop out of school because you're so traumatized. Or you can shrug it off, you know, set boundaries, say, hey, that's not okay and uh, get on and create a good life. And it's really sad. It, it's, it's very sad. And so I understand why at the heart of all the wisdom traditions of this world is forgiveness, is let it go, is let it go, do the best you can, be here, you know, be here now as best you can. And if you've harmed people, ask for absolution. It's the obstacle to kindness that we all struggle with. You know, you know, when the Dalai Lama... I remember in, in therapy, my, my therapist would often say, hey, if you're more like you are right now with me, if you're more, you know, open and vulnerable and sensitive and, and soft, I think, you know, a lot more people would feel comfortable getting close to you. But it's your hard, cynical, cold exterior that keeps people at bay right back to con spirituality podcast on russell brand
The fickleness is a winning strategy for the chaos of the COVID-era conspiracism that we've covered. One week, 5G tech will control your glands. Then vaccines will be microchip carriers. Then it's all about depopulation, then saving the children, and then the evil trans agenda. And finally, Jewish space lasers. The content doesn't matter. But it's actually more than that. Brand's ideological instability works in his favor because it pushes the relational dynamic more squarely into the spotlight. There's nothing there but him. On the podcast, we've also noted that one aspect of this transitory attitude to content shows up in the fact that cult leaders are often chronic plagiarizers. They need a steady supply of material and they don't really care where it comes from. And if you scroll through Brand's YouTube thumbnails, it quickly becomes apparent that the topic could be literally anything, tracking increasingly right word and paranoiac over time, while the affect jokes and gesticulations stay the same. And more importantly, so does the emotional urgency, the sense that everything is always on the line, the feeling that you should never not be around this intense crackle of panic and discovery. There's something really elegant and just about Brand's relationship to truth and reality being exposed by a disciplined journalism that does the exact opposite. As I mentioned, Irwin worked for four years speaking to hundreds of sources, keeping everything locked down until everything was watertight and bled dry of any speculation. And if you just think about it, Medley says, uh, nice mic that this guy's got. He's probably got the same mic that I do. He just has more precise settings on it. But how much data a journey like that would render. How many asides, comments, colorful details. It would be enough for a 300-page book with a thousand footnotes. But instead, Irwin and her team run their findings through a distillation process that boils down to 6,800 words and none of them wasted. And the result is a super clear, subject-centered report showing enough detail to render a crystalline picture, but not so much as to cross over the line into the salacious. Right, so not all media is stupid, all right, not all news reports and investigations are, you know, bogus, all right. It sounds like Channel 4 and the Times of London did a pretty solid job here in their Russell Brand investigation. It is a direct, economical, almost mundane form of devastating reporting. And it's the perfect mirror image of what Russell Brand does every time he opens his mouth. Okay, so those are some notes from our archive, from our collaboration here on the podcast, and they're all about Brand's general presentation, his charisma and affect. The more concrete area of our study involves how he pivoted in the mid-2010s towards the world of wellness influencing via 12-step discourse and his fascination with kundalini yoga. That career shift followed his resignation from his well, wow, that sounds like me. I, I blogged on the, the porn industry, wrote about it from 1995 to 2007. And then I left, uh, took up Alexander Technique, uh, took up 12-step uh, programs, and took up Kundalini Yoga. I was really into Kundalini Yoga for two years, 20, 2009 and 2010. I spent $1,000 each year from all the yoga I wanted uh, passed to a Kundalini Yoga Center. And I really enjoyed it. I just have a weakness for cults because when you go go to a cult, they go, yay, Luke, we celebrate you. We like you. We love you. And there's just so much love around and it just makes me feel all warm and toasty inside. But then I have a part of myself that always wants to go investigate whatever it is that I'm enthused about. And so 
within a month of going to kundalini yoga, within a month of doing thousands of dollars of damage to myself, trying to perform kundalini yoga poses, needing thousands of dollars of physical therapy to try to ameliorate the harm, I was investigating it. And yes, many of the, the poses and procedures were dangerous. And Yogi Bhajan did have a very dark side with uh, grooming and raping women and uh, participating in 3HO, Happy, Healthy, Holy, and the Kundalini Yoga Movement, I think, you know, helped some people, but also devastated thousands of lives. Popular BBC Radio 2 program after a disgusting series of comments about his sexual exploits. His redemption arc landed in California, where his movie career began to take off and where he became very enmeshed in the Kundalini yoga scene. Right, so we were both in the... The same scene, 2010, 2011, a lot of hot women in that scene. I mean, I got a, got a girlfriend there for a year. She was Jewish. It, I just liked it. it. It was just elevating. I even got up at 2 a.m. one morning to go to the yoga center to celebrate Yogi Bhajan's birthday. But I did draw the line at teacher training, right? That's how they make their money by getting you to sign up for teacher training, which, you know, usually runs like $3,000. So I never did sign up for the teacher training, even though attractive women asked me to. And uh, my, my ex-girlfriend, she did go whole hog and she became a Kundalini yoga teacher. Attending public classes, unlike most celebrity yoga students. And, men and so what stopped me from going to Kundalini yoga was eventually I was going to a daily Talmud class at the same time. And the rabbi said, Mamish, you know, this particular yoga studio has got idols up. You know, a Jew cannot go there. I thought, oi, I don't need the surus. I don't need the trouble. I'm not going to defy the rabbi. I'm just going to abandon this type of yoga. Toured by senior figures in the group and getting the Sanskrit symbols for the chakras tattooed on his arm. In 2012, he was often seen at red carpet and social events with his main teacher, Tej Kar Khalsa. He soon became an outspoken advocate for the ecstatic breathing and postural exercises. Uh, I love the ecstatic breathing and some of the, the postural exercises. I, I very quickly stopped doing many of the, the breath and postural exercises because I found, for example, with dog's breath, <laughs> I couldn't do it without tightening my neck and I couldn't do many of the postures without tightening and constricting my neck. So I simply did not do them. So some of the breath exercises as well, I found that they would cause me to tighten and constrict my neck. So I wouldn't do them. So I became much more selective about what I did there. So I, I steadily, I guess, became out of touch with what was going on there. And I never did get my, my Kundalini yoga name. So here he is in that incarnation in 2018 in a selfie video. Hello. Many of you enjoy doing Kundalini yoga with an unqualified yoga teacher. That's good. And uh, the chat says, yoga and Talmud, just like Duvet. Well, you, you should read my depressed blog post from between 2007 and 2013. All right, I sound very much like uh, Duvid. Because that's exactly what I am. This Kundalini meditation is fantastic. It says here in my teacher's training manual that this one is going to make us feel really healthy and like we're smothered in radiant light and beauty. You could just get this. Do you feel smothered in radiant light and beauty when you tune into this show? So how many months of the annual... Yoga pass went unused after the rabbi's comments. Zero. All right, I used my pass up to the end, but I took the rabbi's remarks into account. I, I wasn't going to, you know, let the, the yoga pass go unused and you know effectively throw away money. But once you know, I, I continued on for about two or three more months, and and then I just let it go. So that's the advantage of maintaining a somewhat 
attenuated relationship with Orthodox Judaism is that people don't make the same demands on you as they would if you had a much closer and more integrated relationship with Orthodox Judaism. So I love Orthodox Jewish community, but I also love my freedom. So I give up some freedom for some community, and I give up some freedom for some community for some freedom. You sort of cut me out of the equation. You have to do it for 11 minutes in real Did I ever eat with the Hare Krishnas at their vegan buffets? I would like to say no. I think that would be the correct thing to say. Real life, and you do it while holding your... Well, yes, I, I guess I, I did. Once or twice. I might have. God forbid. Jalanda Banda. Oh, hello. <laughs> so... And I, I said all the chants, you know, Wahe Guru, Wahe Guru, Wahe Guru, Wahe Guru, Wahe Guru, Wahe. Wow, I'm probably spouting idolatry right now. I should probably quit. Pull that in a little bit and have the elbows tucked comfortably against the ribs. Extend the forearms out at a 45 degree angle from the body, thusly, right? And while we're doing it, we chant Rama Dasa Sa Se So Hung. In fact, we don't prolong the hung, we cut it off. Rama Dasa Sa Se. So, I mean, God forbid, at the time, I kind of thought that these Sanskrit prayers were, were more powerful. See, I'm a very religious person. I'm wearing a yarmulke and uh, I've got a beard. And so, therefore, you know that every word I'm telling you now is absolute divine truth. So you can, you can trust me. I'm, I'm obviously a very strong moral figure. And uh, people gather around the world to uh, watch these videos with family and friends and to discuss the profound issues that I raise and to apply some of my teachings to their lives so that they can lead lives of more godliness, holiness, goodness and depth. So I want to talk to you tonight about prayer and which types of prayers are the most powerful. Now I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist so for about 20 years I prayed to Jesus Christ. Frankly it did jack for me. Jack! After 20 years of praying I didn't get nothing of what I most wanted. I didn't get a Dallas Cowboys victory um, after 1978. I was still a virgin, most important of all. Um, I was lonely. I was depressed. I was deformed morally and psychologically. I didn't have enough friends. I was going nowhere with my life. So I switched and I got into Judaism. So for approximately 20 years now, I've been saying my prayers in Hebrew as Judaism instructs. Frankly, it's done jack for me. Look at me. I live in a hovel. Look. Look at this. I live in a hovel. I wear a, a mouth guard to bed. I, I Look. I have to strap on my, uh, my leg splints at night. Um, this is where I live. Look. Look at this. Look at this and weep. Okay? So it's, it's doing jack for me. I ain't married. I ain't got a mortgage. I ain't got a 401k. All I've got is debts and hopelessness. I've had 21 years of illness. I haven't had a healthy day in my life since early February 1988. So the last 21 years of my life I've been sick. So I'm just talking efficacy here. Like, you know, what, what does prayer do for me? Like, what does God do for me? Okay? I mean, you can go to my website, yourmoralleader.com. You can see the formidable contributions that I make for God, for Jewish people, and for humanity, and for the doctrines of ethical monotheism. But what's in it for me, okay? 
I want to know what's in it for me. I, I've always voted Republican, and after eight years of Republican rule, look where I'm living. I'm, I'm willing to give Barack Obama a, a chance because I ain't going nowhere. Um, I've got chicks who don't call me back. I got no pull with the ladies. I'm a, I'm a mess. So, all the prayers I've been saying in Hebrew ain't done nothing for me. Okay, I still got my chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm still a wreck. So, three weeks ago, I started going to yoga where you say prayers in uh, Sanskrit. They make absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, Sanskrit terms, uh, satnam, that's how you greet people. And you start off tooting in, chanting, Om Namo Guru Dev Namo. And this refers to the infinite creative energy, reverent greetings implying humility, the giver of the technology divine. This mantra calls upon the creator, establishes a strong and clear connection to the divine teacher within. Okay, yoga makes no sense to me. These Sanskrit prayers make no sense to me. All the little hmm and hmm and hmm and hmm and hmm and hmm makes no sense to me. But guess what? What I've been doing ain't been working. So I'm willing to try things that make no sense to me. And why am I willing to try things that make no sense to me? Because tens of thousands of hot chicks in spandex can't be wrong. You go to yoga class, there are three times as many women as guys, and about half the chicks are hot, 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 hot. So I'm willing to give it a chance. Also, I've got to tell you this, I was in yoga about two weeks ago, and sitting next to this beautiful woman who I'd never met before, she was incredibly flexible, she could touch her toes, she could do the splits, she could do things that I can't even describe on this family friendly video channel. And uh, without my saying anything, without her knowing anything about me, she, she intuited and said that I had a very strong sexual energy. Now I've been praying in churches for 20 years and then praying in synagogues for 20 years. Ain't nobody come up to me said, I can tell from your prayers that you've got a strong sexual energy. Yeah, and then I, I dated this fine Jewish woman for a year. I mean, yoga is a beautiful thing. So anyway, I'm giving yoga a chance, and i got to tell you, I'm feeling happy. Like, after years of misery. No, I, I didn't own the 1979 Datsun Station Wagon at this time. In 1995, I bought a Dodge B350 one-ton van. So I was still driving that monstrosity at this time. I'm feeling happy. Like... And it's making me wonder and question, do these Sanskrit prayers, are they more effective? I mean, they make zero sense to me, but somehow when I go... Bro, this is way before my sex addiction, all right? I made this video in late January of 2009, so I didn't start going to sex addiction 12-step meetings until May of 2011. So let's keep our chronology straight, all right? I, I know I'm always into this, and I'm into that, and I'm all enthused about this solution for my ills and that solution for the world's ills, right? But this this is three weeks into my Alexander Technique teacher training, uh, two years and four months prior to going to my first 12-step program for sex addiction. Are they doing something? Because something's happening to me. And it ain't from my thrilling Jewish prayer services. There's something new and changed in my life. It's yoga.
and it's working and I'm happy and I'm aligned and somehow I really feel like I'm giving my chronic fatigue syndrome to Wah, Wahe Guru, which is just a Sanskrit uh, Sikh terminology for God. So I'm still... That is my, my shoulders and everything's a lot more compressed, right? I still like much more pulled down and compressed than I am today. Praying to the same God. There's one God who controls the universe who demands moral behavior from us. So that ain't changed. But the way that I'm reaching up to that God is changing a bit in that I'm, I'm trying some of the Sikh stuff and it's working. So why is Sikh prayers more powerful? I mean, your mileage may vary. That's just how it's working for me. I don't understand this. None of this makes any sense to me. You know, I find it, I don't understand. Prayer makes no rational sense to me. Like God's going to change his mind. It's like, I pray to him every day and say, God, please lessen my chronic fatigue syndrome. And he's going to change his mind. Or I say, God, please don't let my mother die of cancer. And, oh, he's going to save her from cancer because I prayed for her. Okay, it makes no sense for me. God, please don't let rockets rain down on steroid and kill innocent people. You know, uh, how, how effective were prayers in the Holocaust? Okay, I mean, that's the bottom line. My prayers to Hashem through Judaism have been every bit as effective as the prayers of all the Jews who went through Treblinka and uh, Auschwitz through the gas chambers. Okay, didn't do them any good, ain't doing me any good. So I'm trying this Sanskrit stuff, this yoga stuff, this Sikh stuff. Makes no sense to me. Stay tuned. I'll let you know how it works. So far, doggone it. <laughs> okay, that's from January 2009, God forbid. Hey, so, hung. And we pull that, hung, we pull that banda right in. Hung, we chop it right off. Hung, <laughs> like that, with a little bit of leeriness. Before we start, though, you might want to pop a blanket on your head. You might not want to. You might be wearing a Make America Great Again baseball cap. You can put whatever you like on your head. I'm not going to judge you. I don't mind. What do I care? We'll all be dead soon. We start with the old chant. They say this is the tune-in frequency. Hung, namo, gurudev, namo. Repeat three times. Hasn't changed much, has he? The jokes, the sexual innuendo, the strategic self-deprecation... But then also something that the majority of his 6 million plus subscribers on YouTube will have no clue about, which is that he's providing free marketing for an extremely abusive group. If you're not familiar with so the Kundalini my friend Rabbi Gadol has just come into the chat 30. room and he accuses me of being filled with goy joy. I don't know, do I seem particularly happy? Maybe it has something to do with this music. It's the music that I listen to in more energetic parts of uh, yoga. Now, my friend Rabbi Gadol says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. We we can't play anything. Uh, can't play anything. Uh, copyright. All right. Let's see. We've got some other videos here on yoga and the Alexander technique. Reading constructive awareness, Alexander technique and the spiritual quest by Daniel McGowan. And uh, on page forty-one, he talks about yoga." And it's so right, because often in yoga, you sit, you're told to sit with your back straight. Most people react to this request by drawing themselves upwards, pushing themselves upward as high as possible. And they try to do something to make the back straight. This doesn't last long because our habitual misuse of our body uh, leads to postural reflexes that are not functioning properly. So you cannot escape old ingrained habits of bad use and poor posture simply by will. 
the old habit is too strong, no amount of doing will achieve a straight back for any length of time, or more, more correctly, a balanced, easy posture. So when you're meditating, a balanced, easy posture is highly desirable. You want the body to be comfortable so that the body does not affect the mind. Most people, however, they don't have a back strong enough to support the torso easily, even if they're doing a lot of weight training, etc. They need to be re-educated in constructive awareness to you have to keep a straight back without undue effort. So this is not macho strength developed through brute force. There's a quiet endurance which is gradually built up so the postural reflexes are released and allowed to perform in their proper coordinated function. And this is a great thought. It says that we often think that gravity is a heavy burden that we have to carry. It's the enemy we fight till it lowers, lowers us into the grave. It says it's not true. Only when gravity is restored does the space traveler return to an erect position, an erect posture. So if you remove gravity, such as with astronauts in space, then contrary to expectation, the body does not lengthen and expand. It shortens and narrows. Gravity actually allows the body to expand in all directions. So people often think that we will inevitably must become stooped and bent in old age. This is unnecessary if you learn good use and good ways to think about how you use yourself and constructive awareness. You can have good use as you get older and older. Okay, not exactly a particularly uh, dynamic Dynamic video there, I apologize. Michael in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on the risks and the rewards of yoga. We hear a lot about the rewards of yoga, but we don't hear so much in the news media about the risks of yoga. And yet, yoga is probably the biggest source of uh, injuries for, for, for many people, uh, you know, biggest source of income for physical therapists. So, New York Times reports Indian practitioners of yoga typically squatted and sat cross-legged in daily life. And yoga poses, or what are called asanas, were an outgrowth of these postures. Now people in the Western world, they tend to sit in chairs all day and they work into a yoga studio a couple times a week and stretch and strain and to twist themselves to ever more difficult postures despite their lack of flexibility and other physical problems and uh, supposedly wow I just don't have the energy and the charisma this is from 2012 when it, when I didn't have the the beard anymore okay Alexander technique and yoga maybe if I play I like to be helpful and kind I like to do just random acts of kindness as many times a day as I can so when I was checking myself into yoga the other day, I I just took out my my key keychain and just ran up past the scanner to help the woman behind the, the the desk, and she responded, "You just checked yourself into the pregnancy class." That's okay, I responded. Half of them are mine anyway. And the other girl behind the desk said, "Just what we need: off-color humor at yoga." So a lot of people ask me how I can reconcile my yoga with my Orthodox Judaism. I don't is my favorite response. I prefer to respect the integrity of both systems and I don't try to integrate them. I've next to no interest in Jewish mysticism. And I don't have much interest in the theory behind the yoga that I'm doing. I'm just there to meet girls. I don't take yoga that seriously. I do it because it feels good. It's a pleasant change from my hovel. My yoga studio smells good, looks good, it's filled with good-looking people, everybody's nice and mean. I don't feel like a weirdo there. Now, someone were to ask me, which they never have, how I reconcile my yoga with my Alexander Technique training. Now there's a ripe field for discussion. In many ways, Alexander Technique and yoga are opposites. Kundalini Yoga, the brand of yoga I practice, is all about breath manipulation, aka conscious breathing. 
Alexander technique is against breath manipulation that favors unconscious breathing. Yoga is significantly about doing, while Alexander is significantly about non-doing. Yoga is about chanting and meditation. You don't zone out in Alexander. You keep your attention on the present, you keep your eyes open, you look around the room, you're alert. Yoga is about postures and exercises. There are no postures and exercises in Alexander technique. So how do I reconcile these seemingly irreconcilable practices? Well, I give priority the practice I spend most on, and ding, 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 that would be Alexander Technique. When my yoga and my Alexander Technique collide, my yoga loses 90% of the time. 10% of the time when it wins is when there are hardly any people in my yoga class. I feel it would be rude to the teacher if I did not participate fully. Normally when I go to yoga, I skip about 90% of the breath manipulation. I only do about half of the exercises and meditations. The rest of the time, I just lie back in semi-supine and enjoy the experience of people knocking themselves out all around me. Damn, another one bites the dust, I think, as I see people reinforcing bad habits, tightening and compressing their necks, shoving their spines down into their rectums, gasping for breath, and generally wreaking havoc with themselves. So, I feel quite superior to these sweaty masses, except for my great humility and spots lofty spiritual attainments. So I've been thinking a lot about anxiety and fear lately. I've read that emotions are only possible with a certain alignment of the musculature for each emotion. It's just a mistake to think of thoughts and emotions as separate from the body. The alignment of the body shapes thoughts and feelings. Thoughts and feelings shape the alignment of the body. When you suffer fear and anxiety disproportionate to your circumstance, it is in part because of the horrible things you are telling yourself, and in part because you're most likely pushing down, compressing and tensing the neck, clenching. If I can be conscious when I feel unreasonable amounts of fear and anxiety, I can come back to primary control, the head-neck relationship. I can let my neck be free, I can think up, I can let go down with pressure, unnecessary clenching, and the stupid irrational things that I tell myself. I have a good friend who uses gasps as dramatic exclamation points in conversations. And All right, that's the, the girl I dated. She was always being very dramatic. Makes life more exciting when you're around her. I really enjoy her gasps. I've been enjoying them so much over the past few months that I started gasping too. But whenever you gasp, you tend to compress your neck and tense your neck. Now, it's great to punctuate things, but I don't want to tighten my neck and I don't want to go down. It's bad Alexander technique. She, she would make me gasp, this woman. All right, if I do yoga and meditation, do I need Alexander Technique? So I remember this guy named Larry Horse commented about an interview with me recently. He said, Luke's Alexander Method sounds like bull. These folks should just do some TM, Transcendental Meditation, and some yoga before going to see Luke. I teach Alexander Technique by Deadly Hills. So folks, you can do all the yoga you want, all the Transcendental Meditation, any kind of meditation you want. You can go to church, you can get psychotherapy, and it's not going to help you change your habits of needless tension and compression. If every time you lift your arm, you compress in your shoulder so that this distance narrows. Notice the distance didn't narrow. Uh, like every time you lift a beer to your face or lift a spoonful of food, you compress. Now you're going to have a lot of pain and other trouble. So people often go to yoga thinking that it will fix them, but it's doing something positive for their posture. And you watch people hobble, hobble into yoga and hobble out with the same tension patterns that they had going in. Now if you tip your head back and compress your torso, every time you get in and out of a chair or do any of the other common tasks of life, anytime you encounter a stimulus, and all the yoga and the meditation in the world is not going to fix that destructive habit. So most transformational systems kind of take you from where you're at and then build on that by giving you things to do. Alexander Technique is unique because what it does is it kind of deconstructs and starts taking away your interfering patterns of needless tension and compression. But it's hard to lose these patterns unless they're pointed out to you and the teacher works with you to release them. Then as you take away these interfering patterns of pulling down and compression, and then gradually you start to expand and you take up your full space in the world instead of like, oh, I need to cramp myself, this is really hard. This is tough, I need to just gut it out. And as you like gut it out, you pull down and you tense up and you compress and you do all sorts of harmful things to yourself. Okay, is yoga idol worship. Let's try this video. So it's Tuesday evening, January the 5th, 2010. 
feeling a lot of anxiety. I feel like my Come on, man. world I'm is spinning around, feeling anxiety from my dating life. But if you're seeing someone and you fear that you want her more than she wants you, what if... Yeah, she's just about to break up with me. I mean, we only break up about five times over the course of a year, and then this is the, the final blow. It's about to descend upon me. You want her more than she wants you, and that gap, that discrepancy, that's greater than I feel like my ability to soothe myself. So that just leaves me with anxiety. The anxiety about money. I'm uh, trolling Craigslist and looking for work, particularly writing work. And there uh, seems to be a lot of cheat scammy come-ons, but uh, not much really out there. Feeling anxiety about my mouse. I've had this mouse for about four years, three years. It's in pretty good service, but uh, it's not working so well the last few weeks. I'm having to grip it more tightly, and that's putting a lot of tension in my shoulders and back. Like my, like my nifty keyboard. Out of from safetype.com. It's good for working with uh, carpal tunnel. It's a lot easier to type like this than like this. When you type like this, you've got a lot of tension here, here, here. You type like this, that tension goes away. Hmm. Then I'm feeling anxious because I was just reading an article on tabletmag.com is yoga kosher. And today's the day I need to renew my yoga membership for another year. Get unlimited yoga for $1,000. So this is a big expense. I don't have much money. But as I'm going about four or five times a week, it only works out to about four or five dollars a class. So I feel like it's a good deal. But is yoga kosher? So I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism. So, so in uh, 2009, I, I think I went 212 times to my yoga studio, or I took 212 classes. So some days I'd take three yoga classes, including, God forbid, on Friday night, sometimes I'd go to yoga instead of going to davening. Then in 2010, I was sick and tired a lot more. I think I only took like 110 classes. So in 2009, I was only spending about $5 a class, but by 2010, I was spending about $10 a class for my $1,000 annual pass. So I feel like I have to prove myself more than your average Orthodox Jew. And I sometimes go to Chabad Shores, and I was just reading in this article that the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Nachum Schneerson, said that yoga or yoga and transcendental meditation is not kosher. Well, I'm fine with not doing transcendental meditation. I don't even know what that is, but I definitely like doing yoga. And, and I put my hands in prayer pose like everyone else and say, Om Namo Guru Dev Namo So I do the mantras. So I do Kundalini Yoga. And I go to a Chabad Shul and the Rebbe said that all yoga is not kosher. So that makes me feel a little anxious. I'm reading this great book. It's called Passionate Marriage by Dr. David Schnarch, S-C-H-N-A-R-C-H. You don't have to be married. I've never been married to get something out of this book. It's introduced all sorts of powerful thoughts that had not come. I recommended this book to my therapist. Other people have recommended it too. But when I recommended it, she finally read it. She said it was the most painful book she'd ever read. Considered before. Differentiation. I'd never even heard of that term, but it's the ability to hold on to yourself and your own integrity while maintaining a relationship with another person. So, for instance, a highly differentiated person. I ended up getting thrown out of 109 yoga centers, and I never did anything wrong. So when he's having a conflict, he's able to stay in the relationship, simultaneously self-soothe his anxiety over the conflict, 
and relate to his partner and deal with the conflict. A less differentiated person will have to take a break from the relationship and go off, self-soothe, think things through, and then come back to deal with the conflict. Then a very poorly differentiated person will lash out at the partner or will just run away or will self-soothe through using drugs or food or other unhealthy means. So there's so many powerful thoughts in this, this book. It's recommended to me by my therapist and by a social worker friend. And in therapy the other day, I kept answering my therapist's questions with quotations from this book to kind of put a distance between us. I'm doing psychodynamic therapy. It's a type of therapy that's most similar to analysis and it's very important that you bond with your therapist. So I've been using this book as a distancing technique when the questions are making me too anxious. And such as what do I get out of staying in an emotionally unsafe relationship? It allows me to devalue the relationship so I don't have to be as anxious about losing it. Like if I was walking around feeling like I was carrying a million dollar diamond and also that I could lose it at any moment, I'd be really anxious. But if I'm walking around feeling like I'm only carrying a dollar bill and that I could lose it at any moment, I'm not gonna be that anxious. Tell me what to devalue the relationship. Yeah, I mean, my girlfriend, a lot of, lot of, lot of men had had their way with her, so I didn't really feel like I was walking around with a diamond. If it's an emotionally unsafe one, not treated as that important. I, I mean, there, there are women that I've considered dating, but then you know, most of my friends have had sex with her, and so even though she's attractive and has got many fine qualities, it makes me. A little uncomfortable to date a woman that many of my friends have had sex with. Perhaps I'm just too old-fashioned. So that's that's what I get out of being in an emotionally unsafe relationship. This book says that people tend to date and marry others who are at the same level of differentiation. That we all tend to be at the same level of differentiation as our family and parents. And that we only become more differentiated through crisis and through the hard work of therapy. Okay, what else do I have here? Right, Kundalini Yoga versus Alexander Technique. I tried to be. Right, I've already played that. The Joys of Yoga, have you noticed my spiritual growth? Right, this is when I was on the Mark Germain show. 9.32 now, here on TalkRadio1.com. Mark Germain broadcasting live. And uh, let me introduce you to someone who's been on the show. Uh, how many times have I talked to you before? All right, this guy used to be known as Mr. KFI and Mr. KABC. Luke? Twice. Uh, his third time here on Talk Radio 1. Luke Ford from LukeFord.net. And uh, good to talk to you again. Yes. What's happening with you in your life? Oh, I just got back from yoga. So I got into yoga in a big way in the past three weeks. So. <laughs> you you, you uh, notice a sudden spiritual change in me? <laughs> you dabble in just about everything. You'll, you'll try almost anything, won't you? I will. And have you found uh, Nirvana through yoga? Yes, I've been going out with her for two weeks. <laughs> or you bought their albums anyway. <laughs> no, uh, it's a great way to meet women. It it, really yeah, is. well, it is a, it is kind of a a a, a female form of exer of all that and jazzercise are really uh, uh, female oriented exercises. Yeah, so I mean, any straight guy who wants to meet chicks. And uh, doesn't do yoga as a fool because yoga is just filled with checks. It's a great. All right, this is from January twenty second, two thousand and nine. Great suggestion. And now, uh, do you? F Here's one of the things that I've heard about yoga, though, is that it can be so relaxing that uh, and and the clothing that you're supposed to wear is supposed to be loose fitting clothing, and so. Um, 
you can not be your best in yoga in a yoga a guy is not going to be in his unless you've been doing yoga for a long time and you're in great physical shape it's almost worse to be doing yoga whereas if you're on a treadmill you can kind of fake it I mean, I don't get it. What's the downside for a guy doing yoga? Well, that you are not presenting yourself in your best light. Oh, but that doesn't matter. No. I mean, you're in the ball game. That's what counts. You're in the ball no. game. Everybody's nice. No. And the women are, are vulnerable spiritually, physically, and socially. Mm-hmm. Because, like, in, in yoga, everybody's nice to each other. Yeah. And all their chakras and auras and all that are opening up. <laughs> and they're doing physical things, yeah. which fires up the body to want to do more physical now, things. Now, you're not doing that Hayaditha yoga, yoga, which is like in 110-degree saunas. You know, it's just unbelievably hot while you're doing it. No, 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 no. I'm doing kundalini yoga. <laughs> and how's that different? Um, well, supposedly, I don't know anything, so I'm just repeating what I've been told in my yeah. beginner's classes. Yeah. Kundalini yoga is the mother of all yoga, and it is also the most spiritual form of yoga. Uh-huh. So you get little spiritual commentaries, and then you do various stretches and exercises, and then you chant things in Sanskrit to God, and and uh, then you sing this song, May the long time sun shine upon you. Hmm. By the way, you have and, a lovely singing voice, Luke. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, may the pure light surround you <laughs> and guide your way home. Now, okay, is Kundalini yoga sex yoga? It's very trying for the moral leader to keep dealing with dirty minds. So why do people keep calling Kundalini yoga the sex yoga? Kundalini has nothing to do with sex about balancing the body mind and spirit it's about attaching yourself to god it's about stretching and groovy tunes and hot aids it's not about sex there's nothing to do with sex sit in the back at yoga i never think about sex not even when most of the women are wearing spandex and doing provocative poses since i've been practicing celibate pros pose i've been celibate this stuff really works baruch hashem hmm so I asked a yoga teacher about this. He says it's because of two reasons. One, the word kundalini sounds sexual, and that refers to the spine. And two, kundalini yoga teaches white tantra. Now, this involves no sex, but when most people hear the word tantra, they immediately think of sex. White tantra is just chanting and meditating. Red tantra. Yeah, come on, guys. All right, uh, this is my 2007 girlfriend interviewing me here in 2012. Right, this is uh, Christine Palmer, who is public affairs director at a radio station. Oh, that that at that Roman Catholic uh, university in in Los Angeles. Blanking on the name. Oh, and uh, FM Alexander was actually quite opposed to meditation. So, Alexander technique is a way of noticing in the present time what we're doing, and it's a way of stopping doing those things that hurt us. So you have to be conscious and aware. So an Alexander teacher with his pupils will say, you know, hey, be aware. I want you to keep your eyes open. I don't want you to zone out. I don't want you to trance out. Because it often feels amazing to let go of unnecessary body tension. And then you want to kind of capture that feeling. But the more you hold onto it, the more you'll tighten and uh, make it difficult to recapture. So the way that you recapture the good feelings is by remembering the thinking that creates them. So Alexander technique is primarily a cognitive system that is then applied to your body. Okay, let's uh, get back to 
con spirituality here talking about Russell Brand and Kundalini Yoga. 36, 37, and 64, in which we examine the life and death of Kundalini Yoga celebrity Guru Jagat with journalist Stacey Stukin and religious studies scholar Philip Dieslip. I took a lot of classes with uh, Kundalini Katie, a.k.a. Guru Jagat. She even took an Alexander Technique lesson from me. So Kundalini Katie was great. She'd often talk about astrology in her yoga classes. She was you know, just a lot of fun. She was joy. She was light. She was love. Jagat was a millennial leader of an offshoot sect of Kundalini Yoga, and she inherited the founder's leadership. Now, that founder was Yogi Bhajan, who died in 2013, leaving behind a legacy of sexual abuse allegations and corruption. The book that Brand is reading from in this video is one of the dozens of teaching manuals compiled by Bhajan's students from his public talks. And at one point, he turns the cover over to the camera, and Bhajan is right there in a glossy photo. Like the stories about Brand, the reality of Yogi Bhajan's behavior was known for decades. The real public reckoning, however, erupted in January of 2020. We cover that in our book, and I'll quote it here. Pamela Dyson, formerly known as Premka, published a memoir about her time as a secretary for Yogi Bhajan. She described meeting him in 1968 at the age of 25 and quickly being swept up into decades of emotional and sexual exploitation. Her renown within the group gave weight and volume to whispers that had circulated for years. Within weeks, a Facebook group formed to study and support Dyson's book and soon attracted dozens of similar testimonies of abuse. This spotlight brought renewed attention to Bhajan's odious record with recordings of his lectures recovered and circulated on Facebook. Quote, rape is always invited, unquote, he told followers in 1978. Quote, a person who is raped is always providing subconsciously the environments and the arrangements. If you do not provide the circumstances and the arrangements, it is impossible, unquote. All right, obviously he, he's not uh, 100% correct about that, but there is some truth to, to what he says that uh, often victims of rape, just like victims of murder and victims of financial crime, have, have done things that have placed themselves in harm's way. So I went to Yogi Bhajan's 80th birthday party. I believe it was Yogi Bhajan's 80th birthday. He introduced Kundalini Yoga to the West. And uh, so... The, the program began at 2.40 a.m. with Japji. And I'm not the kind of guy who likes to miss Japji. That's this gorgeous Sikh chanting. So at 2 a.m. I, I hear sounds on my roof. I finally get up at 2.22 a.m. take a cold shower. Trim my bangs. It's important not to go to sadhana. That's early morning uh, Kundalini yoga stuff with long bangs. And I want to save the $16 of a new haircut. So I put on my sweats and a t-shirt, long sleeve shirt, grab my blue pillow, my yellow yoga mat and uh, a blanket walk off to the yoga studio so 2.45 a.m. I arrive my normal spot is taken it's quite traumatic so I find another place by the wall and as I set up a bearded seat hands me a white handkerchief to cover my head look around everyone's head is covered I'm just wearing a yarmulke and a confused grin so I put the handkerchief aside I don't roll that way I'm not a married Jewish woman I'm not a Sikh I don't have to cover my hair I'm Luke Ford so I lie down on my yoga mat the man returns and he's insistent that I cover my head oh he seeks wonder if he's wearing his little sword today I guess I better obey this is a very different rap. Whoa. Okay. This is from, uh, what, January 2009. Evening yoga classes. This is a religiously serious gathering. It's not dilettante yoga. This is fierce. So I agree to put on the cloth, but I make him tie it for me. After all, the Jews are the chosen people. So I love the japji. Men lead and the women respond. It's the way things should be. It makes everything easier for everyone in the long run. 
I chase you around the hovel until you submit reluctantly to my iron. God, God forbid, God forbid. Anyway, uh, Helen posts on my Facebook, uh, good old Yogi Bhajan. I often find myself wondering, what would Yogi Bhajan do? Always the right thing. Always the right thing. Well, I lie there wondering if I was listening to Hebrew prayers for the first time, would I find it equally beautiful? So 3 a.m., they begin like three hours of Ong Namo Guru Dev Namo. And all the chanting. No, that's just for a few minutes. It's two and a half hours of Ek Gon Gar. Bit much for me. So I lie down and, uh, ah, that's right, I didn't bring a blanket, so just lie down. I lie on my side. I'm kind of cold and, uh, oh yeah, I kind of drift off to sleep. I dream that Guru Singh has given me this assignment to stir three big pots of soup, so I accept the job. <laughs> As I stir the soup, I notice a big balance bar in the soup. Stir it round and round. It's chocolate nut, round and round. Then the room spins. I'm at the ashram in my dream. The prayer's done. A group of young men walk up to me, and uh, one says, Hey, Jew, and they start beating me up. One of the peace-loving Sikhs intervened in my dream. I'm just talking my dream here. They just stand around and watch as I'm beaten to a pulp. So that was my nightmare. And I had 6 a.m., I wake up. The announcement, everyone's going to the ashram across the street. Everyone's walking for breakfast. <sighs> it's time for me to go to bed. Sleep-deprived and miserable. Okay, look, everyone celebrates Yogi Bhajan's birthday in their own way. Now, as this real history of the group became clearer, Guru Jagat and other Kundalini Yoga leaders began circling the wagons. Okay, we got... Uh... We've got Guru Elliot Blatt. Oh, with blessings. Us. Namaste. 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 Yeah. Uh, Wahey Guru. That too, bro. Hey, uh, I got a yoga story. Beautiful. And I think it's very similar to yours, but uh, I was a lot younger. I was like uh, 19. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just super depressed, you know? It's just like an unhappy little angsty teenager slash young adult, you know? And. Um, I had been depressed for months, you know, and, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of philosophy and things like that and read about the story of the Buddha and how he did yoga. And I, I walked into, uh, I walked by a, a yoga studio or yoga, it wasn't even, it was like a, it was, I don't want to call it studio because it was more of a temple. It was a very religious context. Um, and it's a free yoga for a free first class, you know? And so I went in and took the class and I had the most incredible experience. And I was like, I was soaring, emotionally soaring. I had this level of happiness I hadn't felt in, in like years. And I was hooked from that day forward. I thought that I thought I had discovered something incredible. And um, so um, there's a very positive side to the story, you know, like uh, I, I think you know, yoga, has, this is like you know, probably 30 years ago, uh, even longer. And, you know, yoga was quite rare back then. Now it's on every street corner. Um, but so I sort of get annoyed a bit when, you know, the whole lot of it is dismissed because there are some charlatans, you know. I feel like you, you uh, I think we need to paint with a more uh, delicate brush. And how much yoga have you done over the years? Uh, I was real like probably uh, for the next fifteen years. I was doing it pretty um, pretty frequently, and like I was really good at the headstand. You know, uh, I could do the headstand for like 
multiple minutes. Like I think I did it once for 30 minutes continuously, which I don't recommend. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, that was like the, 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 um, that was my go-to uh, mood mood lifter. Like I would always, it was sort of like a, it would just completely refresh my outlook, you know. Um, and I was my goal was to try to do it for three hours, but I could never do that. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I you know I, I did it for like fifteen years, and then you know, as I get older, you know, and then it got like it got to be there was this hot yoga stuff that came about, and that seemed to take over for a long time, but I hated that. I absolutely hated it. It was a totally different thing. It was just about sweating and athletics. The, uh, the emotional component seemed to not be there. It was sort of, um, it's kind of like an endurance event. It didn't seem to be uh, particularly skillful. I heard you, you once managed a three month erection. <laughs> yeah, it was two and a half, but uh, <laughs> you know, who's, <clears throat> so I also <clears throat> wanted to mention uh, Feldenkrais. I think Glib yes. in the chat. Have you ever done Feldenkrais? Or have I have not. All right. I have. I've, I went to about four sessions and I do not recommend it. Why? It is excruciatingly painful. They don't tell you that in all of the uh, promotional literature. But what they do is they sort of work on your connective tissue mm -hmm. and they do that by digging their feature of their fingers deep into your 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 uh rib cavity you know the the, the gaps between your ribs mm -hmm. and they try to really like work out the tension there and it, it's like being branded with a hot iron it is so painful i cannot i cannot dissuade anybody more uh from it um uh, here's my big point. I, I wanna, I'm trying to make a subtle point here and this commentator that you're reading who's on the left and it sort of pertains to the question that I put in the chat maybe an hour or two ago about Chinese medicine and things. It's that um, people on the left or the sort of that particular hero system, they seem to have an allergic disdain for anything that's personally empowering or, um, you know, sort of rooted in things that they don't understand are not, are not quote unquote scientific. They the only, they are, um, you know, the purely the um, everything is matter worldview and they cannot stand people that venture out of that paradigm. And Russell Brand is one of them. And that's seen as that fact is used to discredit him in this guy's analysis. Anything what I'm trying to say there? Well, yeah, those who see the world in, in purely material terms are not going to relate to people who see it in spiritual terms. So, yeah. And I find this odious, and I find this, um, I find this very destructive. I think he, he, they're robbing people of a chance at, yeah, you know, higher levels of health and happiness, which I think we ought to be about. How are they robbing people? I mean, they, they don't have any coercive power. They're just doing a, a podcast, bro. No, but they, excuse me, they contribute to the climate and the consensus that disparages these 
out these paths of knowledge, right? He's not directly harming anybody, but he's not, he's never done yoga, I'd imagine. He's never no, he does do yoga. yoga. He does a ton of yoga. He's been doing yoga for decades. How do you know? Did he say because that? he talks about it. Okay. But has he done like that sort of gymnastic yoga or is he just creeped out by it? Because there's sort of an esoteric dimension that he just finds this tasteful. Yeah, he's not into esoteric yoga. He's into more physical yoga. Okay, but you yourself say that you did, you know, you were doing it for a while and, you know, it had an incredible impact on your mood and things, right? It did, it did. I mean, so, so would an adulterous you, affair. You... So would an adulterous okay. affair. If I slept with my neighbor's wife, you know, I'm sure it'd have a fantastic effect on my mood. No. How long would that last? How long would that feeling last? I don't know. It depends if it was like a positive relationship, the length of the what? relationship. Why are you resisting what I'm trying to say? I don't get it, bro. <coughs> I, you sound you really healthy, bro. I, I heard what you're saying. Huh? Uh, I, I hear what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I'm not, obviously, um, you know, I'm not the poster boy for great health. Um, okay, so uh, part two. So what I'm saying is that um, I think we, uh, it ties together, right? It, it all ties together. So remember the hero systems and conservatives and their, their attitude vis-a-vis the backs. There's a certain self-reliance that are on the right-hand side of things that leftists love to disparage by making, um, you know, cartoonish caricatures of people who do are cartoonish and do need to be caricatured. But by doing that, they um, they sort of cut people off from a deeper understanding of things that could actually connect them to to nature and spirituality. You're not rub. You, you don't see what you don't. You disagree. You, you, this doesn't no, no that, that's true. One hero system automatically cuts off another hero system. If I am authentic with my Orthodox Judaism hero system, I'm not tapping into the joys of Kundalini. There are a whole bunch of things that I'm not tapping into. I am closed off to the joys and, and the beauties of Christianity and Islam and of many other approaches to life. So participating, you know, immersing yourself in one hero system inherently cuts you off from the joys and beauties of other hero systems. Yeah, okay, but fair enough, but it's, but, you know, in the criticism of Brand, it's like, Brand's a big baddie, because look, he did Kundalini, you know, Brand's a big guy, because, you know, he, he got chakras tattooed to his arms. Now, there's a certain, um, it's, it's like, whether you like Kundalini, or think it's great, it is at least a tradition, right? You know, at least it's, it's an ethos. Yeah, like national socialism. No, but it's an actual tradition, right? And if somebody tattoos like a like a, a six pack of Budweiser beer on their chest, this same guy would think that's edgy and cool, right? Because it's meaningless and it's cheapening, right? There's no tradition; it's just nihilistic. But if some if Brand gets the chakras tattooed on his arm, oh well, this is just evidence of his fraudulence and his, his, uh, his soft-mindedness. I, uh, I mean, on the other hand, people like Russell Brand and those who promote kundalini yoga will claim it's thousands and thousands of years old when, you know, it's really a, a few decades old. So there are all sorts oh, of false claims made in many of, directions. 
Hey, it, I don't know how many how old it is exactly, but it's maybe twenty years old in the USA, or at the time it may have been twenty years old in the USA. But it is connected to a larger tradition that's gone on for at least hundreds of years. So, um, I, I just I, I I don't know. I guess the reason that I'm sort of in this part of the political aisle or part of the political spectrum, because I have like a, just a, a respect for tradition. I think tradition. Traditions become traditions because they have they convey a certain amount of meaning. Doesn't mean they're automatically correct about everything, but they wouldn't exist if they didn't carry some value with them. They wouldn't be preserved if there wasn't some something in them that's worth preserving. And if and a tradition can't stand up to a critique, then it's probably not worth conserving. Well, that's where you get into dicey territory because if today is so. You get in the question of who's an authentic spokesperson, who's an authentic representative of a tradition, right? There's a lot of people that can claim that mantle who aren't worthy of that mantle, and therefore they, uh, they degrade and devalue the uh, tradition. So I, I, I think you have to you have to you have to, you have to paint a little bit more uh, delicately when thinking about these things. And uh, so what does what does spirituality mean for you as opposed to, let's say, you completely without spirituality? What would the difference be? I'd be a lot more narcissistic. I'd be a lot more um, selfish. I'd be a lot more crime prone. I'd be a lot less, less effective in my work. I'd be uh, just a lower value human being. Oh, have you done any psychedelics or shrooms lately? Not lately. It's been about two years, but I'm definitely itching to. I want to take, I want to do like a proper, um, a proper five milligram trip. So my last experiment was one milligram. But to really go, you know, really see the crazy stuff, you supposedly need to do five milligrams. So I haven't done it in about two years, but uh, I'm definitely itching to. Uh, what about ketamine? Have you tried ketamine? No. Why not? Um, I don't know. I haven't even given it much thought. I've heard of it. Uh, I think it's an antidepressant. It's not a psychedelic, but I may be wrong. No, ketamine is what they use, can use to put you to sleep for operations. It's yeah, okay, anesthetic. It's a tranquilizer. It's a tranquilizer, right? Knocks you out. Yeah, I don't want any of that in my life. Mushrooms is different. It's a highly cerebral experience. It's not a narcotic the way I don't consider it. it's not a narcotic and the effect on you is not narcotic it's sort of like turning up the volume on your imagination it allows you to see things in different ways it's a very cerebral experience I, I have a I'm generally speaking I have a, a, a general aversion to drugs uh, with the exclusion of drugs and alcohol but I, well, yeah, I have no no desire to be tranquilized two friends of mine who've had depression for years and years and years, one person for over three decades, another person yeah. for close to a decade, they both got on ketamine therapy and within a few sessions, the, the depression had lifted. Well, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I don't feel myself to be depressed though. So <clears throat> I guess if I were to ketamine, I would just feel happier. I have no idea. I, I'm not promoting it to you or to, to anyone. I'm just sharing the experiences of two two friends of mine. How's the uh, cold water swimming? Are you getting out there into the ocean? Um, 
<laughs> Excuse me. I've been waiting for this cold to heal. Um, it's been a cold fall. Usually we get a warm Indian summer, and that's when I like to get in the ocean. So <coughs> I've been waiting for a warm day. Um, so I went swimming about two weeks ago once. I stayed in for about 30, 45 minutes, and I got this screaming rash all over my body. So I've been less enthusiastic. But I well, did you go to a bathhouse as well? No, bro. No, no, no. bro. Okay. Those days are over. I stopped that last year. Okay. I'm proud of you, bro. Proud of you. Hey. It's harder to stop than to never participate. Yeah. But I can't wait to get in because I need to, you know, one session and I lose like five pounds. It's awesome. It's like, uh, but I'm out for the whole weekend after that. I did walk yesterday, six miles, <laughs> which was like blissful because I was really tired and I didn't feel like doing it. So I just forced myself to do it anyway. And then about 20 minutes in, I just started feeling great. All that fatigue had left me. And which goes, which reminds me of, well, it's just like a really good principle, I think, to notice is that you can work through your resistance, right? You don't have to, you know, once you start doing something, a certain inertia and a momentum takes in, and then, you know, all your previous resistance seems to be, you know, it just wasn't worth it. A lot of your resistance, resistance is psychological. And you can see it as such, and just not cave into all of your sort of lazy impulses. Uh, my condolences on your car getting broken into. Yes, that was annoying. <coughs> luckily, and luckily, I'd left the car open, uh, so my windshield wasn't smashed. So <coughs> basically, <coughs> things were just rifled through. I didn't really lose anything. Hey, have you uh, ever so, tested where you live for, for mold? Um, no, I don't have to because there's tons of mold in this place. It's an old wooden building. I know there's lots of mold. But um, why? Because of my cough? Well, you've had it as long as I've known you. And also friends of mine, they discovered that where they lived was filled with mold and they they had all sorts of health problems and they just I moved know, out. I've heard this and these people are the same people that are allergic to wheat and they can't have, you know, uh, non-GMO, uh, they can't have GMO food. You know, there's a certain cohort of people who are just fragile and like to blame their environment and they think cell phone radiation is destroying their mind you know i know that whole game and i'm not playing so you can handle your mold a lot of people can't but you can I you can't, don't mind a I bit can of mold COVID, luke. i can handle covid without any silly vaccine luke i'm just this ubermensch bro yeah i can hear that all right all right i got one i got two more topics so okay i don't want to take up your whole show so i'm going to cruise through my topics so did you see this thing i sent you i don't know if you watched it but um, what's his name? Patrick. His name will come to me in a second. Sam Bankman Freed's father seems to have been the architect, or at least the driving force behind this FTX scandal, right? Very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Boyle, I think his name is Patrick Boyle. I sent you the link. I'll send it to you again. Watch this video. Okay. He's being sued right now, but he's, you know, the professor. And, you know, this guy keeps intersecting my life and your life with, uh, Ronnie Goldman has yes. connections to these people. So this story continues to interest me, but you know he's a, obviously he's a big brain M, M effort 
who, you know, at Stanford, and he has the technical, this FTX game, I don't know what you know about it, was a super complicated uh, legal arrangement, right? Only a really, you know, seasoned legal mind could have put something together as complex as it is. So it now all makes sense to me. His father was the one that really um, did this. And he basically, he's put his son in jeopardy in jail. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating story that's unfolding. Oh, yeah. Right? I, I, yes, I, I agree. I haven't right, so watched do, the video, but I did listen yeah. to like a 40-minute uh, article, I think, from Van from Bloomberg on the same topic. Okay. All right, good. Well, follow that. I think it would be a great thing to, to discuss. Finally, uh, Matt Forney uh, has lost a lot of weight, you know, and he published his uh, strategy for his weight loss, which I thought was interesting. And I'm just wondering if um, you two have been in touch at all. I have not heard. He took great offense when I parted ways with Kevin Michael Grace, and he basically won't talk to me ever since then. <coughs> hmm. I wonder if he still feels the same way. But it'd be interesting to get him back on the on the on the show. Here it's experience. I like I like hearing stories of success. People that overcome odds, you know. And, and what was his? How did he do it? How did he lose all the weight? Um. All the basics, you know, diet and exercise. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> he did use some weight loss drugs, too. Oh, did he use <coughs> Ozempic? I think so. Interesting. Think so. But there were some others. But um, I don't know. He, took, he just set his mind to doing it and then did it. And... And he used visualization and, you know, he threw a lot of things at the problem, you know, and he's had success. <clears throat> and I think we, I think we need more of that. You know, I think, um, you know, like there's nothing like real effort. Sometimes you just have to make real effort to do things. Right. And we don't hear about that. We hear about drugs. We hear about <laughs> easy fixes. We hear about, you know, political problems. <laughs> I have to mute. <laughs> Sorry, my lungs are clearing out. I know I, <laughs> I sound sick. It's just because it was such a deep cold <clears throat> that it's taking a while to clear out. That is a tribute to your clearing out powers. It's it's really a healthy sign. <clears throat> I know. Well, and I did have one more thing. Um, Oh, this is funny. So, you know how I'm doing this book business, right? Yes. And so I'm always scanning for book sales. And I found one over in the East Bay. This architectural publishing house was clearing out their inventory. And these are often just great books to have. So, you know, I cut out during the middle of my work day and I drove across the bay. And I get there, and sure enough, it's a great sale. And it's going on for four days, right? So this was like on Tuesday. And everybody in that, the people attending the sale, you know, the people in, the people buying the books, the people hosting the sale, the people at the cash register, they're just beautiful people, you know? Just high class, high IQ, poised, grateful, you know, graceful people. It was just like, it's like... It, it was just such a welcome relief from the monsters that you see in San Francisco all the time. 
And I look at myself and I'm like, just dressed like a, I just rolled out of bed, you know, and just looked like complete crap. And uh, I just felt like I didn't even belong there, you know, it was so in- intimidating. So the next day, and so they're going to put new books out every day. So it, the sale is constantly refreshing. So it behooves you to go for <clears throat> every single day to get, the, get your uh, crack at the newest books. So I say, well, this time, and there's one particular woman there that's just an absolute knockout, right? So I figured, well, I might as well dress up for the occasion, right? Might as well look the part like I belong there, you know? So I'm in the shower, and as I'm in the shower, I kind of nick my chin with the razor, just a little one, but it draws blood, right? And, you know, I've done yeah. this thousands of times. It's not a big deal. <coughs> but it's a... It was more than just a little big, it was more than just a little nick. You know, I really must have hit a blood vessel or something. Because basically this geyser of blood just starts shooting out of my chin, right? And I'm I'm like, so, and I have to get there when the sale opens. That's another key thing. You have to get the equal. So I'm rushing around trying to get dressed, right? I've got my hand is, I've got like a some paper towel covering the blood, trying to get it to stop bleeding, right? And so I've got, I'm working with one hand trying to get dressed, you know? So I, I don't get a belt. I don't put a belt on, you know? I kind of put my, meanwhile, so I put a t-shirt on, then I'm looking for a proper shirt. And then as I, you know, I let go of my hand to put the shirt on, I look down and then there's like this pool of blood on my white t-shirt, you know? I, it's just going from bad to worse, right? My whole thing is just spiraling out of control. And so by the time I get in the car, my T-shirt is, looks like a butcher's apron, you know. I'm getting little drops of bled, blood on my clean shirt that's over the T-shirt. And nonetheless, I'm sort of rushing out. So I drive across the bridge to the sail, meanwhile holding, still holding a paper towel over my bleeding chin, you know. Yes. And then, and then I, I get, you know, and so it's just like a half an hour drive. And sort of by the time the drive was over my chin had finally stopped bleeding right and so i get there and i go and i start shopping for books you know i've got about an hour before i have to head back to home get back to work and in amongst all of this book shopping i'd somehow like managed to reopen the cut you know so it started bleeding again yeah and so i get to pay off my book get to there with my books and and i i reach out and i put my books on the counter. This is in front of this incredibly attractive woman. And my hand is just soaked in blood. <laughs> I didn't make a good impression, Luke. Yeah, I, I'm so sorry. Because right. that's not how you normally roll. That's not right. So I got to work on my image. That's the, that's the plan for this year. Excellent. All right. All right, dude. That's all I got. Blessings, bro. All right. Blessings. All right. Blessings. Shalom. Denying the allegations and suggesting that Bajan was being canceled in his grave by people terrified of the liberating power of his spiritual teaching. Does this sound familiar? So Brand is not original in this distractive yoga-inflected pivot into conspiracy fantasies, but neither was Guru Jagat. Yogi Bajan, Jagat's late guru and the source for Brand's yoga jargon, was always going on and on about how the FBI was out to get him. Now, in his pursuit of yoga, Brand may have earnestly been seeking a new perspective on life. He may have been seeking absolution, 
But it's a little too on the nose that he immersed himself in the techniques of a charlatan and a predator. But if we set that strange intersection aside, we can look a little more closely at how effective yoga discourse and culture was at giving Brand a plausible cover for his actions and appetites. And that brings me back to this 2018 video. When I first saw clips from it in the Dispatches documentary, my breath caught a little bit, not because of any of his bullshit, which I'm used to, but because of what was in the background of the shot. He's sitting at what looks like an office desk with a patterned shawl over his head, Indra Devi style. But over his right shoulder behind him, two books are visible on a shelf. There's Ram Dass's Be Love Now, which is a pretty milquetoast choice. But the second book is Yoni Shakti, A Woman's Guide to Power and Freedom Through Yoga and Tantra. It's written by Uma Dinsmore Tuli and published in 2014. Uma is a beloved UK yoga leader who has focused on women's self-help in the face of predatory and cultic dynamics in the yoga industry. I know Uma. I've worked with her and presented at her cozily chaotic home studio in Stroud in the Cotswolds. Her specialty is in teaching a form of yogic meditation that's somewhat like lucid dreaming, in which the whole point is to guide students through mythic and psychic landscapes towards personal and cultural healing. Most of her students are women, and much of the community discourse centers around trauma sensitivity. Now, Uma's book is a polemical reconstruction of a pre-patriarchal yoga culture in which she claims that such a practice would have been foundational and accessible to everyone. Historians may find a lot to disagree with in that, but the activist message is generative, and it resonated beyond her circle and into the mainly women demographic of the yoga world. Now, by setting the cover of this book up in the background of his meditation selfie, Brand is signaling, perhaps only to himself because the book is fairly niche, that his intentions are aligned with the Me Too movement, and that his engagement with the yoga world is focused on sacred sexuality. Now, I've asked around, and it's not clear how Uma's book got to Brand, but I do know that her theme and tone is perfect for Brand to co-opt. She translates the Sanskrit title of Yoni Shakti as cunt power in a very UK working class manner. That- yeah, I think, uh, I think Russell Brand could probably roll with that. Get some highlights and from... They're happy to have sex with them, but they don't want to be seen with them. 2009. <laughs> just like, bring them over. They'll go to her place. They won't go out to dinner with her. They won't take her for a walk on the beach. They won't like go socialize with her. What they'll like. Yeah, a lot of my friends are... They're, they're happy to... Happy to have sex with fat women, but they don't want to be seen with them publicly. They just have their bestial, lustful fun with the girl in the privacy of their own place, but they're shamed if anyone would see them together. That's not the Torah's way. No, that's disgusting, if you ask me. That's really, that's disgusting. What, there's no one that you'd be ashamed to be seen with in public? If, 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 if I would be ashamed to see them in public, yeah. then I don't want to be with them in bed. But, but Okay, wily older women who exploited me, and I was vulnerable. It reminds me of when I came to Los Angeles, I was just an innocent child, I was 27 years of age, and I ended up going out with this series of wily 40-year-olds, and they exploited me, just like agro-processors supposedly did according to those illegal immigrants. These women took advantage of my, <laughs> of my callow youth. I mean, they had me working for minimum wage. They had me slaving underneath them. 
I mean, I served these women in a variety of positions. <laughs> and I, they were robbing the cradle. I was like, I was just a child. I was coming out of six years, basically confined to bed by chronic fatigue syndrome. I was like, I was just starting to see the world again. I was just new in Los Angeles. They took advantage of my inexperience. Like, I was just so eager to participate in life again that uh, when they said something, I'd go, oh, sure, you know, I'd be happy to do that. Or, oh, yeah, that sounds like great fun. Or, whatever you need. Or, you know, how can I service you? And, and they took advantage of me. They exploited my youth. Like, you know, my face was unlined. My, my skin was still soft. I had, I had the vigor of, like, a 21-year-old man. And they exploited me to the death. I mean, they exploited me far worse than Agripas has exploited any of these illegal Central American immigrants. Okay. I mean, I was like working in the meatpacking industry for 40-year-old women. I mean, <laughs> this, was, this was a real meatpacking industry. I mean, because they weren't all so slim, okay? They weren't all so slender. I mean, I mean these were heifers, some of them. Like, they really packed on the pounds. And there I was slaving away in this meatpacking industry, like for minimum wage at best, you know, for the odd free meal. And I was... Look, I was the victim there. All right, I got to go. It's time to get ready for seven hours of commercial-free football. Turn on NFL Red Zone. Bye-bye.